Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, Chris Murphy joins us in studio. The 43-year-old was first elected to the U.S. Senate in 2012. Since then, he's become one of the strongest voices for gun control in the Senate, raising his profile on the national stage. It was one year ago today when a gunman killed 49 people inside the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Several days later, the junior senator from Connecticut led a 15-hour filibuster to demand a vote on gun control. One year later, what's changed? That's just one of many questions we want to ask Senator Murphy today, where we live. And you can, too. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Join us on Facebook Live with your questions. I want to welcome Senator Murphy back to the show. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. I mentioned the anniversary of the Pulse uh, shootings, 49 people killed. That's today, one year ago. Are you disappointed that Congress has not been able to enact gun control legislation? Of course I'm disappointed. Uh, There's almost no issue like this in American politics today where 90% of Americans have made up their mind, at least on background checks. Uh, The majority of non-gun owners and gun owners, the majority of NRA members believe that you should prove that you're not a criminal, that you're not seriously mentally ill before you buy uh, a gun. Uh, I was at a um, event in uh, uh, in Eastern Connecticut uh, just yesterday, and a man sort of came up to me and announced himself as a strong Donald Trump supporter, and was very angry at me for not supporting him. And he said, "The second thing he said is that I'm a strong Second Amendment supporter." And he, you know, he said that purposefully to me because he thought that I was on the other side of it. And I said, "Well, so am I." I said, "You support background checks, right?" And he looked at me as if it was the stupidest question I'd ever asked. And he said, "Of course, I support background checks." So there's a commonality of interest on this issue. That just hasn't found its way into the hearts and minds of members of Congress. But I am encouraged that um, we are making progress outside of Washington, that when we get referendums onto the ballot in states, when we go around the political process, we tend to win. So in 2016, the silver lining of that year was that there were four states that had referendums that tightened gun laws. And in three of those states, the referendums won. I think you'll see more initiatives like that in 2018. So, yeah, disappointing that we haven't had progress in uh, Washington, but there is progress happening out there in America that uh, I think is uh, irreversible. Today, you'll be going to an event to mark the anniversary. Uh, You mentioned universal background checks, but what about, again, the idea that people who are on terror watch lists or no-fly lists are still able to buy guns in this country? Where will that legislation go? Well, I think that's the piece of legislation that has the best chance of passing. Um, uh, ISIS right now is actively recruiting here in the United States potential lone wolf attackers, telling them that they should go to gun shows. Uh, They should exploit our loose gun laws. They should buy assault weapons and turn them on civilians. Uh, So 
you know, just as after September 11th, we realized that the weapon of choice for terrorists were airplanes and we hardened our airport security, right? You now have to go through a level of screening and check that you didn't prior to September 11th. We should recognize that the weapon of choice now for terrorists are assault weapons. Uh, and we have plenty of evidence, Orlando being at the top of the list, to show that that is the case. We should harden our defenses there and, and make sure that for those people that we've already deemed too dangerous to fly, that they shouldn't be able to purchase a gun. And also recognize that you know, civilians should not have these high-powered assault weapons. They are different than other uh, weapons out there. The, the, the bullets that come out of uh, an AR-15-like product, it travels at three times the speed of a bullet coming out of a traditional handgun, and it results in a different level of devastation done to the human body. So uh, I, I just think we need to recognize that the terrorists are looking at our gun laws. They are exploiting the looseness of our gun laws, and we should adapt. You can ask a question of Senator Chris Murphy today, where we live, 860-275-7266. I mentioned we're on Facebook Live, too. Just search for where we live and add your question to the comments. Uh, we got to we gotta ask you, uh, Senator Murphy, about the climate in Washington. I believe you're four years into your term in the Senate. President Trump surpassed his first 100 days in office. There were doubters that he'd make it, and he's still there. Meanwhile, Republicans retain control in Congress. What is the climate in Washington? Well, it, you know, it's it's a very uncomfortable and at some level unnatural moment. I felt like, you know, by the end of 2016, I was just getting good at figuring out how to do big bipartisan deals, reaching out across the aisle. As a lot of people in Connecticut know, I worked for you know, all of 2015 and 2016 on a major reform over nation's mental health laws, um, uh, the biggest reform to mental health laws in the country in a generation. I did it with um, Bill Cassidy, a real conservative uh, Southern uh, Tea Party-aligned senator. Uh, and so then 2017 comes, and I'm a member of the resistance movement, right? I'm spending 80 percent of my time uh, trying to fight uh, the Trump agenda, uh, trying to find some space for bipartisan alignment, but it's much tougher than ever before. Um, you know, there's unfortunately not a lot of significant signs that Republicans are willing to break with this uh, president, um, but we are, you know, actively trying to find some way to engage with r Republicans because I think that ultimately there there there, there might be some uh, some some commonality there. But no, the the culture is. Um, you know, pretty toxic right now. Uh, I find myself spending most of my time in opposition. I'd rather be cooperating with Republicans to do something good for Connecticut, and maybe that opportunity comes later. Let's talk about what's going on inside the Democratic Party. Uh, we're getting a tweet from George who wants to know what can be done to avoid a fractured Democratic Party going into the 2018 election. You mentioned you've made efforts to reach across the aisle, but many Americans, when they see uh, what's going on in Washington, they see extreme partisanship. And there is infighting within the Democratic Party as well um, with what happened with the election. I mean, how do you unify? Well, I mean, listen, my, I mean, my first obligation is to do you know, good things for the state of Connecticut. So I don't spend a lot of my time, you know, worrying about party politics. Uh, that's not the job that I'm being sent to Washington to do. But to the extent I am a member and an active member of the Democratic Party, um, it, it's not something that's unimportant to me. Uh, I, I don't really see disunity right now in the Democratic Party. I mean, I think Donald Trump has been a tremendous unifying force on the Democrats in Congress. And so uh, I think we are speaking right now with one pretty clear voice against some of these hateful and divisive policies like the Muslim ban, uh, like the effort to strip health care away from 23 
million Americans, like the appointment of people who are just desperately unqualified to serve these, these agencies, like Betsy DeVos. Um, and so I don't really see that division that I know a lot of pundits would like to uh, would like to exist uh, because it makes good TV news segments. Uh, I think right now you know, we're pretty unified in trying to stop the worst parts of this agenda become law. What about the issue of health care? Obviously, you mentioned many Democrats, of course, don't want to see ACA, the Affordable Care Act, repealed. Um, but Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, again, leading the charge for single-payer health care in this country. Can that ever be a reality? Well, listen, I, my position on sort of where we should go from, from here is to give people the choice as to whether to buy into a Medicare product or a Medicare-like product. Uh, so I'm a big supporter of um, every single person in this country having the ability to buy into Medicare and, and do it at a sliding scale, which gives a discount to people of sort of middle and lower income. Uh, I think ultimately a lot of people would choose to be in a Medicare system because it's likely going to be the cheapest option. It's got the lowest administrative costs of any uh, plan out there. It doesn't have the pressures to pay investors back and big CEO salaries. Uh, I think Medicare could compete uh, with private insurance. Um, uh, but right now, I mean, I, I think this is a really interesting conversation about where our healthcare system should be 10 years from now and whether we should have Medicare choice or single payer. But our focus right now has to be on stopping this disastrous Republican uh, repeal legislation from going into effect, which would strip away from about 23 million Americans, hundreds of thousands of Connecticut residents, the ability to buy insurance would allow for discrimination against people with pre-existing conditions, all to pay for a giant tax cut for people making over $200,000 a year. So, I, you know, I, I think it's interesting to talk about uh, the future of the American healthcare system, but we have a present real threat that's posed to people's health care here in Connecticut, and that's what my focus is, is really about. Now, the House GOP, they already passed uh, their health care bill. It's now before the, the Senate. And what can be done to safeguard, as you mentioned, health care for millions of Americans who are able to get it under the Affordable Care Act? Well, I mean, this conversation is anchored in politics. Ultimately, Republican senators have to believe that if they vote for something this reckless, if they vote to take health care away from millions of Americans, um, jack rates up for everybody else just so that they can pass along a tax cut for millionaires and billionaires, they have to be convinced that they will lose their seats in Congress if they do that. Uh, so, you know, the, the resistance movement's ability to make uh, House members' lives miserable, those who voted for this, it's important because senators, Republican senators, are looking at the treatment that is being afforded to House members that voted for this, and they are wondering whether they want to go through the same thing. Um, I, I wish this were about policy at this point, but I worry uh, that Republicans have made the commitment that they're going to repeal this thing. Uh, they're kind of like the dog that caught the car, right? They told you forever they were going to repeal it. And now whether or not it's good or bad policy, they're determined to do it. Uh, they've got to feel that there's real political pain on the back end if they end up doing something this devastating. Uh, it's before the Senate, as I mentioned. Could a filibuster happen? No, because they are doing this under a perversion of the budget reconciliation rules. So every year you are allowed to pass a budget um, with only 50 votes and any legislation necessary to implement that budget. And so they have contorted the rules uh, so that they can package the entire health care repeal bill inside 
this budget reconciliation measure, uh, meaning they only need 50 votes, meaning that there can only be 30 hours of debate. Now, they are also um, writing this bill behind closed doors. Whatever you want to think of the Affordable Health Care Act in 2009-2010, there was a full open committee process in the Senate and the House. Committees debated the bill in the Senate. This, the committee that I sit on, the Health Committee, had months and months of meetings. There were hundreds of Republican amendments that were offered and adopted. There was a month of debate on the Senate floor. All of December 2009 was spent um, in a continuous open debate with amendments on the Affordable Health Care Act. That's not happening here. This is all happening behind closed doors. They're running it through a process where they only need 50 votes. The American public will probably never see this bill uh, before it gets voted on by the United States Senate. And that's really standing next to the bad policy, a travesty in and of itself. We want to take some calls now. Uh, Seth is calling from Newington. Seth, you're on the show. Hi there. Uh, I had a question for Chris. What do you thought about the uh, being on the no-fly list is uh, a problem because you can, it's easy to get on the list, but imp- nearly impossible to get off. Uh, there's no due process for it. Well, we have in the bill that um, that takes the no-fly list uh, or a portion of the no-fly list and, and applies it to the, the list of individuals prohibited from buying guns, we have a very clear process to get your name off that list. So uh, we allow for the ability to um, get your gun ownership rights restored. And yeah, I, I understand that there are uh, some people on that no-fly list who shouldn't be there, but ultimately I think you should err on the side of caution. Um, I, I will accept the downside of a few people uh, mistakenly having their gun rights taken from them temporarily if the, the the flip side is that very dangerous people who may have known connections to terrorist groups uh, don't get their hands on weapons. So uh, when it comes to the threat of terrorism, I just accept that there are places where you err on the side of caution. This is where we live. You're hearing U.S. Senator Chris Murphy in studio with us. You can ask a question, 860-275-7266. We're on Facebook Live. Put your question in the comment field. You can also find us on Twitter, at where we live. Uh, Chris, uh, Senator Murphy, you mentioned uh, the toxic uh, climate in Washington. We have to talk about Russia. Tomorrow, AG Jeff Sessions will be before the Senate Intelligence uh, Hearing uh, Committee before hearing. Do you believe that President Trump should be charged with obstruction of justice? So I'm not an expert in in criminal law, so I'm going to leave that question for the answer for other people. Um, it's Listen, if obstruction of justice is an effort to try to frustrate law enforcement agencies from enforcing the law, clearly that's an activity that Donald Trump was engaged in when he asked uh, the FBI director to stop an investigation into a a top White House official who had just recently left the White House. He clearly was trying to uh, obstruct justice. Now, you know, that's uh, that's my layman's understanding of uh, the terminology, but this certainly looks like something very, very serious that law enforcement should consider. And I and I believe that uh, Mueller is uh, looking into a question of obstruction of justice. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I await his recommendations. And you mentioned special counsel, uh, with special counsel investigating. What can Congress do? Well, I, th- I think that the pressure that we applied that ended in the appointment of a special prosecutor is probably most important. Now, we still need to have our own 
um, investigatory process, which is happening through the intelligence committees, because we have a separate um, constitutional obligation uh, to try to figure out whether in the end there is a reason to take action against this president. Uh, but I, I have faith that Mueller has the um, uh, the jurisdiction and has the resources to ultimately find out if there was criminal wrongdoing, if there really was collusion between this administration, the president, uh, and the Russian government. Donna from Meriden has a question related to this. Donna, you're on the show. I am. Thanks. Hi, Senator. Um, thanks for taking the call. Uh, as, as far as tomorrow's uh, meeting, I am uh, hoping that it will be an open a hearing, seeing that, uh, and then possibly back to a close so that the American people can see what's really going on. This man has lied twice, it's been proven, um, and now possibly a third one. And I think as an American, um, we all should hear some things. And if he's got something that uh, he thinks that shouldn't be shared and it should go to a close, to a close meeting, then so be it, just like Comey did. The other thing I had was, uh, as far as what's going on behind closed doors, 13 guys are getting in a room talking about everyone's health care. That's disgusting. And that's what's going on with our country right now is that um, instead of having a democracy, it appears we are now in a dictatorship. And that's so unfortunate. Well, listen, I, I agree with this um, just unjustifiable lack of transparency, um, you know, the idea that there are 13 male Republican senators sitting behind closed doors, frankly, using the cover of this Russia saga in order to negotiate a bill that will transform one-sixth of the economy is outrageous. Uh, I agree that Sessions should testify in open session. Um, and I think it speaks to, uh, you know, the insufficiency of having the Intelligence Committee be the primary vehicle for this investigation and inquiry. Remember, the Intelligence Committee um, was convened to oversee the covert agencies of the federal government, to oversee the CIA, the NSA. Um, and so it was set up in a way in which most of their work would be done behind closed doors. Um, this really inherently is not a question of, uh, you know, the, uh, of oversight of intelligence agencies. This is about whether a political campaign colluded with a foreign government. That, frankly, is a more appropriate investigation for the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, upon which I sit, or the Judiciary Committee, which oversees uh, criminal law. Uh, so the issue with the investigation happening in the Intelligence Committee is that a lot is going to happen behind closed doors, as is their practice. So I think that Sessions A should probably be testifying before the Judiciary Committee instead of the Intelligence Committee, and he should absolutely be testifying uh, in open session with, as you said, a closed component to it. That's what James Comey did. You mentioned uh, the investigations trying to find an answer to Russian collusion. But when we look forward to the midterm elections in 2018, any worry that there will be interference again? What is being done to, to safeguard our elections? Well, I'm absolutely worried that there'll be interference again. And uh, you know, I can tell you that they haven't stopped trying to penetrate uh, the defenses of the U.S. government and of individuals inside the government. R remember, they have paid virtually no price for their interference. There were a set of 
you know, relatively low-level sanctions that President Obama um, enacted against Russia at the end of 2016. And as you have seen, uh, the Trump administration is interested in rolling back some of those sanctions, in particular uh, the effort to take away from Russian diplomats uh, to compounds that they were using uh, to launch these cyber attacks against the United States. We are probably going to debate this week uh, a sanctions bill against Russia in the United States Senate. It will be very interesting to see if both Republicans and Democrats support that sanctions bill. It will be very interesting to see uh, if President Trump commits to signing it. But it's June. I mean, we are six months into this new term, and we are just now talking about a sanctions bill against Russia for their efforts to try to steal the U.S. election. And if they don't feel any pushback, if they feel like they're getting sanctions relief rather than additional repercussions, then they are absolutely going to try to do it again. And listen, there's reason for them to do it. Uh, you know, Donald Trump has pursued a dream foreign policy for the Russian government. He refuses to give a fulsome commitment to NATO Article 5, which is the collective defense treaty against Russian incursion into Eastern Europe. He is eviscerating the State Department, which is often the biggest thorn in the side of Russia in and around their sphere of influence. He has effectively handed over the future of Syria to the Russians. Uh, he's not putting the United States at the negotiating table for the future of Syria, giving, giving Russia that portfolio almost completely. If Russia was in charge of U.S. foreign policy, this is what it would look like. And so they are absolutely going to be interested in 2018 and in 2020, keeping Trump and his allies in power. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. U.S. Senator Chris Murphy is in studio with us as we ask him about politics in Washington. After the break, we'll find out more about foreign policy, proposed cuts to domestic spending, the future again of the ACA, and what's up with Qatar, that tiny Middle Eastern country? Is it a friend or a foe? We'll take your calls, too. Got a question for Senator Murphy? 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Twitter at Where We Live or on Facebook Live, too. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. U.S. Senator Chris Murphy is in studio with us to answer your questions, 860-275-7266. Senator Murphy, uh, before the break, we were talking a little bit about foreign policy. So let's start there. Specifically, what's happening in the Middle East with Qatar? So uh, in early June, uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain announced their decision to sever diplomatic relations with Qatar. Why is this problematic for us? Well, it's problematic for us because we need um, a community of effort in the Middle East to fight terrorism, uh, to try to settle some of these regional crises like Syria. And when you have uh, GCC allies, Sunni Gulf allies like Qatar and Saudi Arabia splitting, it makes it harder for us to bring everybody together to tackle these big problems. Um, listen, we have... Um, you know, our, our friends in the Middle East defy e easy labeling. They are sometimes friends and they are sometimes adversaries. They are doing things that are helpful to us and then they are doing things that are counterproductive. And both Saudi Arabia and Qatar fit in both of those categories. Neither are perfect allies. The reality is the issues between the two countries are ones largely of domestic politics. Um, Qatar uh, has been a country that tries to position itself in a way that it can continue to talk to the Iranians. Saudi Arabia has no interest in any of its friends in the Gulf talking to the Iranians. Qatar often 
um, creates bridges to political opposition groups in the region, like the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, that's not something that uh, a dictator like al-Sisi in Egypt is interested in. Uh, so, you know, this is really about the fact that Qatar often is doing things that creates internal domestic problems for countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt. They blame it on what they say is Qatar's support for terrorism. And yes, Qatar has had a history of moving money to groups that support extremism, but frankly, so has Saudi Arabia. And I could argue that Saudi Arabia has put much more money into those groups and into that movement than Qatar has. The real head-scratcher has come in the 16 different positions that the Trump administration has had on this. Uh, uh, late last week, um, uh, Secretary Tillerson sent out a very clear statement saying that Saudi Arabia should end their blockade of Qatar, uh, that Saudi Arabia needs to bring Qatar back into the fold, and not 90 minutes later, President Trump went before a press conference and reversed that policy, said that it was his idea to impose the blockade and that Qatar is a supporter of terrorism and they need to be held account. Um, people all across, uh, leaders all across the world are walking away from the United States because they have no idea what our foreign policy was and is. And this is a perfect example of how confused folks are within 90 minutes. Uh, our policy on a very important question of political alignment in the Middle East changes. Um, and it means that nobody has any idea what we stand for. In terms of the recently announced uh, Saudi arms sale, uh, you're leading uh, with uh, Senator Paul a resolution to block offensive missiles from being part of that. Talk about that for us. So this will be the first debate and vote that we have on foreign policy in the United States Senate this year. Senator Paul and I have introduced a resolution that seeks to cancel a small portion of the big Saudi arms deal that President Trump announced during his visit. It's a $110 billion sale overall. We're seeking to cancel just $500 million of that sale, which is relative to some uh, precision-guided missiles that are being sold to the Saudis that are being used by the Saudis in their bombing campaign inside Yemen. So Yemen is a civil war uh, between um, the former government and a sort of Houthi uh, ethnic resistance group. It has created a famine in Yemen. There are 8 million people on the brink of starvation. We just crossed 100,000 cholera cases. And the U.S. has been supplying the Saudis for their bombing campaign. The U.S. is participating in this bombing campaign, which is creating a humanitarian nightmare inside Yemen. So we are objecting to this arms sale because we want the Saudis to stop targeting civilians. We want them to stop targeting humanitarian assets inside Yemen. We want them to get serious about a political process. And uh, I think it's going to be a very close vote because there are a lot of Republicans and Democrats that are concerned about U.S. involvement in this civil war inside Yemen and the humanitarian catastrophe that it has created. Muneeb is tweeting, um, are more Democratic senators willing to join this fight that you mentioned? So Senator Paul and I introduced a similar resolution last fall. It was admittedly to an arms sale that had sort of, tang sort of tangential connection to the Yemen civil war. We lost that vote on the floor of the Senate, uh, you know, I think about uh, 70 to 30. Um, the Democratic caucus was split right down the middle. 
those supporting the resolution and those opposing it. Uh, I think we will have close to unified support from the Democratic caucus in support of this resolution because it is so clearly targeted to arms that are being used um, to help create and, and exacerbate this humanitarian crisis, this famine inside Yemen. Uh, I'm going to leave this studio and go to work on the few remaining votes. We have a handful of Republicans who are supporting us as well. Um, this vote will happen on Tuesday or Wednesday. It will be one of the closest votes that occurs this year in the United States uh, Senate. We'll, we'll see what happens. Jennifer is tweeting, in the first 100 days, Donald Trump seems to have made most of the world hate the U.S. Are these relationships repairable? I, I think it's a really interesting moment uh, because you can argue that we live in a very different world than we did 10 or 20 years ago. There's less reason to rely on the United States in part because the world is multipolar today. If you're a free agent, you don't have a choice between just the Soviet Union and the United States. You have a lot of suitors. Uh, right now, whether it be the, the U.S., the Russians, the Brazilians, the uh, Middle Eastern countries with bigger reach in their sovereign wealth funds or China. Uh, and so at this moment where countries feel like the United States is a less reliable partner, where the United States is essentially disappearing from the globe due to the fact that the president won't staff the Department of State, it's telegraphed, he wants to cut it by 40 percent, a lot of countries are just making other plans. And you've heard uh, Chancellor Merkel and Germany say that very explicitly, that Europe just can't rely on the United States and we've got to take care of ourselves. I think a lot of that is hard to put back that put uh, put that back together. Um, the checks and balances in our Constitution work pretty well for domestic policy. They don't work for foreign policy as well. Congress can't substitute ourselves for a president when it comes to presence overseas. And a lot of countries will end up making regional alliances, will end up reaching out to the Russians and to the, uh, to the Chinese for protection or for economic uh, development, and they won't ever come back to the United States. This is something that, you know, in many ways might be irreversible. You mentioned the State Department and cuts of up to 40 percent. You have a plan that you've released uh, that would um, actually boost spending uh, not only for the military but for diplomacy. Is it realistic? Well, I don't think it's realistic in the short term. I've proposed a plan to double the budget of the State Department and USAID, and uh, I see it as a national security imperative. The fact of the matter is the threats that we face today, the emerging threats around the globe, whether it be climate change or global pandemics, uh, extremist recruiters operating online, the creeping influence of corruption, petro dictators rich with oil, all of those uh, threats to the United States and to our neighbors can't be met with military supremacy alone. Um, you need to meet those threats with asymmetric power, power that is expressed through energy independence programming, anti-corruption programming, anti-propaganda programming, economic empowerment programming. All of that happens in the State Department and USAID. So I think if you really want to protect this country, um, yes, we have to have the strongest military in the world. I'm a believer in peace through strength. But you have to recognize that it's the State Department and USAID which actually is going to be able to meet some of these asymmetric threats. I don't think my proposal to double the State Department budget is, um, you know, is realistic in the short term. But we're making the case that ultimately that's one of the most important ways to protect this country and our friends. Let's talk a little bit more about Syria. The Atlantic reported the other day uh, three U.S. strikes on Assad forces in the last month. Are we in another war? We've got Iraq, Afghanistan, and now Syria on our plate. Certainly feels like we're sliding into another war. Yeah, let's let's uh, let's say exactly what happened here. And you referenced it in the last thirty days. 
there have been three separate instances where the United States has taken military action against uh, Assad and Iranian-aligned forces. Now, there is no legal justification for that. Uh, the president has argued that he has the ability to use U.S. military power against ISIS, and, and I would argue he does not. Um, I would give him that authority, but I would argue currently he does not have that authority. No one, no one can argue that he has the authority to take military action against Iran or against Bashar al-Assad. So he would need to come to the Congress to get that authority, and you have seen a dramatic increase in the pace of U.S. military activity against Assad inside Syria, and it suggests that's going to continue. Um, again, very quietly, uh, the president has dramatically increased the size of the U.S. military footprint inside Syria. You know, three years ago, we had nobody inside Syria except for some CIA operators. Today, we have somewhere around 1,000 U.S. troops that are building up inside Syria. They don't seem to be leaving anytime soon. Um, and the danger is that we could wake up someday soon and find ourselves in a major conflict inside Syria, not just against Bashar al-Assad, but against Russia and Iran. And the president could be asking Congress for 50,000 troops to go in. Um, it seems as if we still have not learned our lessons from Iraq and Afghanistan. This is where we live. U.S. Senator Chris Murphy is here. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Bill's calling from Middletown. Bill, you're on the show. Yes, hi. Hi. Um I'm a long-term, uh, long-time Democrat, um, and I've been <clears throat> following your career, uh, Senator Murphy, and um, I've always liked the issues you've tackled. And um, I, I'm, I'm hoping, I pray that the United States government will be restored to sanity. Now, one of the things, too, is that the Democratic Party is in sore need of leadership, and I'm hoping that you will be one of the people that steps up to the plate and does that. I think uh, you could uh, be a strong leader for the party. Thank you. Well, th thanks, Bill. I um, I invited uh, my friend Cory Booker to come here to Connecticut this weekend. He spoke at our annual Democratic Party dinner. And, uh, you know, I, I think it is a moment where newer, younger leaders in the party can step up. Uh, people like Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, the Castro uh, brothers. Um, there are some real great new young leaders emerging inside the party. And I think that that's important. You know, for a long time, we were the party of the Obamas and the Clintons. And I think this is a, a great time for some new people to step forward. And, you know, if I can be part of that group, then, um, you know, I'm, 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 happy to, I'm happy to do it. Uh, Booker is seen as a candidate for 2020. Are you interested in running for president? I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in being a great United States uh, senator from Connecticut. Um, I, uh, I have to get through re-election in 2018, and so that's my uh, priority. But yeah, I never imagined that I would get to do this job at this point in my life. I've always been interested in public service and in government, um, but this is a dream job to represent this state that's meant so much to me and my family, and that's my, uh, you know, that's my interest. I certainly am, as Bill mentioned, I'm interested in in trying to be a national leader for the issues that I care about, whether it be protecting uh, the gains we've made in our healthcare system or combating gun violence. So I am interested in having a national voice, uh, but I'm right now interested in doing that through the United States Senate. We'll take more of your questions and calls after the break. This is where we live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Chris Murphy's here, U.S. Senator for Connecticut, the junior senator. Uh, we have a lot of people on the line. We'll take your calls in just a little bit. I wanted to ask you, Senator Murphy, uh, Tara from on Facebook writes, what changes could be made to Congress to help members better represent their constituents, not their donors? Publicly funded campaigns, term limits perhaps? Definitely publicly funded campaigns. Uh, you, you know, I, I think as, as close to a panacea as exists for what ills government today is campaign finance reform. It's not just that, you know, the big donors tend to have more influence, tend to get their voice heard in Congress. It's also that the way in which we finance campaigns today promotes dysfunction. Um, You know, I wish this weren't true, but when I send out a fundraising email to my list talking about something terrible that the Republicans did. It raises five times as much money as when I send out a fundraising email saying that I did something great. And so, you know, it promotes this trench digging that happens after each election because it's the way in which you raise the money that you need to run for re-election. And, you know, when a self-funder can just come in and plop 20 million or 5 million down in a race, you can't ever stop um, that incessive drive to make sure that you have enough money to uh, run for re-election. Uh, so I'm a big proponent of public financing. I think Connecticut's model is something that, that we should adopt on a national scale. It's clearly not going to happen under a Republican Congress. But, you know, people want to hear a message of government reform. People know that something stinks right now in Washington. They know that they are not getting what they should from government. And a lot of that has to do with the campaign finance system. Uh, Mike has a question for the senator from Southbury. Mike, you're on the show. Yes. Um, my, uh, I just want to say that every time I've seen your ticket uh, uh, <clears throat> on the, the voting uh, sheet, I have voted for you your entire career uh, as an unaffiliated voted and uh, now as a Democratic uh, registered voter. Um, my concern is uh, corporate uh, donations to the Democratic Party nationally and uh, locally. And uh, are you willing uh, to take a stand for the people and uh, uh, only accept donations from uh, constituents and uh, individual voters throughout the country so you can avoid the label of corporate Democrat and uh, truly be a progressive uh, national leader? I will say this. uh, If you are primaried uh, with a person that uh, completely uh, 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 unaffiliates himself with with any corporations, uh, I will vote for that man against you. Uh, I don't wish to do that, but I think that's the direction the Democratic Party has to go. A more progressive and more uh, steadfast uh, uh, electorate needs to vote for only Democrats that are going to uh, uh, represent the people truly and take the corporate uh, Democrat out of the uh, elections. Thank you. Well, listen, thanks for your support. I think this is a fascinating question, right? Because we all exist in in a system in which you have to raise private money, right, from uh, individuals uh, that work for companies, uh, for people that have interests before government. We can't take corporate money, um, but you can take money through political action committees that are controlled by uh, corporations. Um, and, you know, the, the reality is, is that it's hard for all of us to create lines in which money we will accept and which we won't. Um, so I have some, you know, industries that I won't take money from. Um, but even that is sort of hard to police and patrol because what about the individual? So I don't take money from drug companies, for instance. Um, but, 
you know, what about somebody that works for a drug company who donates $3 to my campaign online? Do I, tr- do I return that contribution to them? Are, are they giving to me because they are trying to get something done in government for their company? Or are they giving to me because they care about animal welfare, or because they care about preserving the Affordable Health Care Act? I think this whole system is totally miserable. Um, and so my emphasis is on changing it from soup to nuts, right? Creating a system by which you can have campaigns publicly financed because to sort of perpetually put uh, those of us who can't self-finance in the position of saying, okay, I'll take money from you because your motivations are pure, but I'm not going to take money from you because I think your motivations are unpure. That's, uh, that, that's asking us to get into donor psychology in a way that will be perpetually impossible. So I know where this caller is coming from, right? And I'm not saying that I don't create some lines, but to, but to do what he really wants, which is to let the pure people donate and, let the, and, and stop the impure people from donating, would essentially be impossible to enforce, which is why I stand up for the public financing of elections. I want to talk more about uh, the cuts that are proposed in the Trump administration, specifically uh, with the U.S. Department of Education. Um, You're a member of the Senate Help Committee and the Appropriations Committee. You've been rather outspoken uh, against Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. I wanted to play this exchange that you had with her recently. My question is, does your proposal require uh, any of these companies to disclose their profits? Will it cap the salaries of these CEOs, what protections are, will be in your, specific protections will be in your proposal, uh, in your program to make sure that taxpayer dollars don't just end up enriching uh, the pockets of the folks that own these companies? Senator, thanks for that question. Um, I think your question more broadly is better framed around what are students achieving and I think the question is not what the tax status well, that's is. Well, that wasn't my, that wasn't the, my I don't think the question is the tax status of no, that was a my school. Question. The, the question is not the tax, in my view, it's not the tax status of the school. It's what are students achieving. No, you can have any view of my question as you want, but my question is what protections will be on taxpayer dollars to make sure that the heads of these companies don't end up becoming millionaires or billionaires. So, so she you did not want to answer yeah, that question. She didn't want to answer your question. So a lot of people are worried about the future of, of public education in this country under Betsy DeVos. Tell us what you're upset about in terms of uh, these this choice uh, proposal out there. What could happen to, to schools and who would be getting money in their pocket? So I worry that this whole choice proposal, this whole voucher proposal that Betsy DeVos is proposing is a fraud. I worry that it is a scam. Um, Why is that? Well, because Betsy DeVos and her family were major investors in for-profit companies that owned and operated elementary schools. Um, And in Michigan, almost all the charter schools are owned by for-profit companies. And so what DeVos is proposing is to take a whole bunch of money and instead of sending it to the public school system, send it to the private school system through a voucher program. Now, there are a lot of good private schools out there. There are a lot of great private charter schools in Connecticut and across the country. But that's not what Betsy DeVos historically has supported. She has supported for-profit companies 
coming in and taking over these schools, for-profit companies that end up skimming, that end up driving up class sizes, that end up stripping services out of the schools in order to pay their CEOs millions of dollars, in order to pay their investors millions of dollars. And my question was, what are you going to do to make sure that your program just doesn't result in my taxpayer dollars going to enrich the CEOs and the investors of these for-profit companies? And as you heard, she would not answer that question. So listen, I worry that this whole administration is a scam that President Trump is putting into these cabinet-level positions, billionaires and millionaires who are going to use the agencies they control to enrich themselves and their friends. And DeVos's voucher program partnered with her enthusiasm for for-profit companies that run elementary schools, partnered with her family's history of investing in those companies. Um, boy, that looks really dangerous to me. So what can be done to avoid this from happening? Well, listen, I don't think that we should be allowing for-profit companies to run schools. I mean, I, I just think that we should say that, um, that, that, that there's no room for for-profit companies to run elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools in this country, that you shouldn't be able to make your fortune uh, off of stripping services from kids. Go ahead and make a buck off of selling an automobile or a box of cereal. Um, but, you know, the idea as one of the members of the Republican caucus in the education had that we should look at selling education just like we look at selling mayonnaise, this was an analogy that he made in that hearing, is ridiculous to me. So th- I think we should have some absolute protections built into the system. Uh, Dory is tweeting, is there anything that the, we can do in Connecticut to protect ourselves from these decisions made by DeVos? Well, in Connecticut, we don't have for-profit uh, charter schools. We have public charter schools that are operated by nonprofit companies. And in Connecticut, you know, we can just say no. We can um, say that to the extent we want to invest in school reform, uh, I'm a supporter of charter schools. I think there are good ones and bad ones, but I think they're, they're a positive development in this state. Uh, we can just uh, make a decision to keep all of our school ownership and control in not-for-profit and public hands. I want to take a, another call. Uh, Hillary's calling from New Haven. Hillary, you're on the show. And it looks like she's not there. So I wanted to just uh, maybe bring the conversation back home, Senator Murphy. Again, you do represent uh, Connecticut in Washington. But Connecticut's going through some tough times uh, financially. A lot of people wonder what you can do as a, you know, our federal senator to help Connecticut through some of the, these binds. Well, Connecticut's in a tough situation today with these seeming perpetual deficits. Imagine how much worse it would be if the federal government uh, passed along a 10-year, $10 billion cut in Medicaid to the state of Connecticut. So part of the reason that I am so ferocious in trying to stop this Republican health plan from becoming law is because inside of it is a massive, devastating cut to Medicaid. If you partner together the president's budget with the American Health Care Act, that's the Republican health care repeal bill, those two together would represent a 50 percent cut in Medicaid dollars to the state of Connecticut. That's billions of dollars a year that would come off the top of a budget that already is over a billion dollars in deficit. So I would love to say that I can you know, go to Washington and solve Connecticut's deficit problem by bringing back hundreds of millions of dollars in additional aid. That is not going to happen in a Republican-controlled White House and Congress, but I at least can try to stop uh, the federal government from uh, exacerbating this uh, crisis we have in Connecticut with major new cuts. What are your top three priorities going forward? 
Well, I mean, listen, my top three priorities are all oriented to job creation here in Connecticut. So we haven't talked about manufacturing here, but I am trying desperately to work with the president on making real his commitment to buy America and hire Americans. So I've got a number of proposals before him to um, invest more taxpayer dollars in manufacturing jobs. Uh, I am working really hard on education because that is Connecticut's strength. So uh, if we can protect education funding for the state and perhaps make some uh, gains forward on job training programs. Um, that's really good for uh, for the state of Connecticut. And then uh, health care. Um, you know, you can't get a job if you are, aren't healthy enough to stand on two feet. And the idea that Republicans would pass a bill that would, A, rob health care from about two hundred to 300,000 Connecticut residents and jack costs up for everybody else, that's terrible for Connecticut's economy. So, you know, I would say that, you know, education, manufacturing, protecting the health care gains that we've made, those are probably the you know, I don't, I don't. I guess I don't order my work one through ten, but that would be a pretty honest stab at my top three. I want to take uh, one more call before we uh, run out of time. Nicholas is calling from West Hartford. Nicholas, you're on the show. Just a couple minutes. Hi. Um, so there's a lot of discussion um, in the media that's basically just the two parties going at war with one another. There's a lot of party lines that sort of get reiterated over and over again. And I was just curious, sort of in the office behind closed doors. When you're meeting with other senators, is there any degree of cooperation that we're not seeing in the media? Like, is there anything that's moving forward that, you know, gets lost in the buzz of the, of the partisan conflict? I think it's a great question. And you are right. I mean, listen, the media, not necessarily NPR, but the cable news media, they cover politics as sport, right? They sell ad revenue by uh, creating constant conflict between Republicans and Democrats. And so they never cover the times in which we cooperate. That mental health bill that I wrote for two years, that is revolutionary. That is going to result in hundreds of millions of dollars in new care being authorized to people with mental illness. And I did it with Republicans, but it barely got a mention on MSNBC or on Fox News or on CNN because it's not conflict. It's not soap opera. It's not drama. And yeah, there's some cooperation happening today. You know, underneath what you see on TV is perpetual conflict. Um, We are going to vote this week on Russia and Iranian sanctions um, on the floor of the United States Senate. And there will be Republicans and Democratic support for it. That bill will be authored by Republicans and Democrats. The resolution that Senator Paul and I have to stop the Saudi arms sale, that's a bipartisan resolution. It'll have Republican support. Um, You know, I have deep Republican friendships. I've spent a lot of time uh, trying to build relationships across the aisle, and they still are meaningful. Uh, Politics will always involve, you know, some headbutting. But what's happening in reality is never what you are seeing on TV. What you are seeing on TV, what you're seeing on uh, on the internet is in some ways a bit of a fictionalized version of reality. Today it is more partisan than it was in 2016, um, but there still is cooperation that happens. And I think that that's what people in Connecticut want me to do. They want me to fight this guy when he's wrong for the state, and they want me to work with Republicans when we can do something that's good for the state. Are you worried about voter turnout in, 20, in 2018? You mentioned the resistance. People are fired up now, but a lot of the action out there. Are voters going to be discouraged and not show up at the polls? The only reason they won't show up is if the law doesn't let them show up. So here in Connecticut, if we make it easier to vote, people will vote. In other states, if they make it harder to vote, well, people will have a harder time voting. I want to thank U.S. Senator Chris Murphy for joining us today. Thanks so much for your time today. We thank appreciate you. it. All right. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>